please stand for the reading of God's word. Today, the passage is Luke 9, 28 through 36. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent, and at that time, no one, they told no one what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, thank you so much, Jesse, for reading the passage that we'll be exploring today. We're officially in the fall season, but it doesn't really feel that way in this room right now. I probably shouldn't have wore flannel. Um, I'm afraid my forehead may be a little bit more shiny even than normal today for you. Sorry about that. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the leaders up at the Edmonds Expression, uh, but it is always uh, a joy and a privilege to be here with you in this way in Wallingford as we open our Bibles together as we explore God's word together, as we continue this journey through the book of Luke, uh, in the, exploring the passage we just heard read by Jesse a moment ago. But before we get there, I just want to share uh, a, about a story that I, I heard a little while back. It was a story about a husband and a wife who were uh, born and raised in the Middle East. They were born and raised in the country of Iran. And at some point, as adults, this man and this woman, they both came to know Jesus. They put their faith in the gospel and they became Christians in their home country. Now, you may know that in, in Iran, becoming a Christian is not something to be taken lightly. It can be a pretty serious matter. You see, Iran is a country that has been dominated by the religion of Islam for many, many centuries. And to turn your back on that religion, to walk away from your Muslim faith, it could cost a person everything. It could cost them their family and their friends their physical safety, it could cost them their lives, quite literally. In fact, in Iran, people who come to reject the, the religion of Islam and who instead profess their allegiance to Jesus, they run the risk of facing uh, forms of persecution that can be extreme and, and disturbing. And so when this husband and wife had an opportunity to get out of that country, to get out of Iran and to to immigrate into the U.S., it seemed, like their, it seemed like their ticket to safety. It seemed like a gift from God. And not surprisingly, they seized that opportunity. They got out of there. Now, the fact that they would seize that opportunity to get out of that place, that was not surprising at all. But what was surprising was, 
what happened to them after they got to the U.S. They got here, and after living here for a little while, the wife was becoming more and more unsettled in her, in her life here and also in her search for Christian community. And very interestingly, she reached the point where she actually wanted to leave. She wanted to return to Iran, and she began trying to convince her husband that they needed to return to Iran. And get this, when the husband questioned her about this, when he, when he asked her why in the world she would give up her religious freedom and her life in the U.S. to return to a life in Iran, she said this. She said, can't you hear it? There is a satanic lullaby being sung in this place. And so many of the Christians here, she said, are, are sleeping and I am already beginning to feel sleepy myself, she said. This woman had come to believe that there was a greater danger to her soul as a Christian living here in the United States of America than, than there was returning to the, the problems and the, and the persecution in Iran. A satanic lullaby being softly sung. Do you know what she's talking about? Can you hear it? Do you perhaps feel drowsy at times in your, in your walk with Jesus? Do you perhaps feel that way today? I think it's quite easy to kind of doze off, spiritually speaking, in this place where we live. If I'm going to be honest, I've heard that lullaby being sung, and I regret to admit that at times I may have even sung along with it. And I think one of the reasons for that is that my, my natural tendency, naturally speaking, my natural tendency is to seek after a life that is comfortable and convenient. My natural tendency is to seek after a life that is safe and certain. I like to have control in my life and, and over my life. Now, many of us here today, we've done, we've done okay for ourselves. We have most everything we need and, and then some. And at times, it's hard not to look around and think, hey, look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. I've, I've got this. And it can be easy to kind of lose sight of our, of our need for Jesus if we're not careful and to begin leaning on, our, on ourselves and our strengths rather than leaning on Jesus and his. I do not, naturally speaking, gravitate toward a life of self-denial or a life of self Sacrifice, even though, no, though I know I am called by Jesus to take up my cross and follow him into those things, as we talked about last week. But something I've come to realize about this is that the more I allow my natural tendencies to lead me and control me in my life, rather than allowing Jesus to supernaturally lead me and control me in my life, the more sleepy and sluggish I become in my walk with him. The Bible cautions us in many places not to, not to doze off. It tells us again and again to, to stay alert, to, to pay careful attention. It tells us quite literally in places to, to wake up. And friends, at times I, I need this. At times I need a wake-up call. I need an alarm to go off about this because at times I do get lethargic, spiritually speaking. And, I, and my guess is at times you, you may too. But today's passage has something fascinating, I think, to say to us about, about being awake and, and staying awake as Christians. 
You have Peter, James, and John in this passage with Jesus on a, on a mountaintop, right? They're, they're praying. And, and then you have Peter, James, and John, one by one, dozing off on Jesus. They, they fall asleep, it said. But when they woke up, when they became fully awake, verse 32 says they saw something. They saw something that would change them forever. And it's something that should change us forever, too. What happens in this passage is very unique and, and very, very profound. This passage is, is giving us a glimpse, really, behind the curtain into, a, into another world, into the eternal kingdom of, of God. And this passage is going to give us a glimpse, not only of the Jesus who came, but also of the Jesus who is coming again. And what I want to suggest to you today is that getting glimpses of the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, seeing and experiencing him for who he really is, it's what you and I need more than anything else in this life. The title of today's passage is, or this message is a glimpse of glory. So let's, let's talk about that, the glory of God. And this passage is going to give us several glimpses of God's glory, I think. One, one from the past, one in the present, and one of our futures. First of all, a glimpse of glory from the past. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you, you may have noticed something about today's passage as you heard it read. Think about the imagery being communicated in this passage. You have a mountain in verse 28, right? You have dazzling brightness and whiteness in verse 29. You have glory in verses 31 to 32. You have a cloud in verse 34. You have a voice speaking from that cloud in verse 36. So does that ring any bells? Does that sound familiar at all to you? Now, for some of you, I'm sure it does, because this very same imagery is found in the Old Testament book of Exodus. And there in Exodus, you have God leading his people out of bondage from Egypt, in Egypt, into a new life and into a new place with him. In fact, that's what the word Exodus means. It means a departure, a movement, a movement of people out of one place and in, into another. And do you recall what form God took in the Exodus narrative as he did these things? He, he took the form of, of a cloud. Now, during the day, we're told that cloud looked like a bright and and brilliant cloud of, of white smoke. And at night, when the sun was gone, it looked like a pillar of blazing fire, we're told. And just about everywhere this cloud and this pillar show up in the book of Exodus, we're told the glory of the Lord was there too. But what is glory? How would you describe it or define it? One definition of glory that I came across that I like describes it this way. It says, glory is a biblical term used in reference to the manifestation of the immediate presence and power of God. The biblical concept of glory carries with it connotations of inexpressible beauty and majesty. At the same time, however, it implies an absolutely pure and terrifying and unapproachable holiness confronting and incompatible with the sinfulness of humans. And so that's glory. And in the Exodus narrative, you see exactly why glory might uh, be defined in that way because you have uh, all of these elements you just heard about at play in that, in that way. Because the Lord in this form, in the narrative of Exodus, he was, he was present with his people. He was 
powerful for his people, right? He would part the Red Sea. He would destroy the Egyptian armies. He would lead the people of Israel into a new life with him. And we're told there came a time when when the Lord summoned Moses to join him on, on a mountaintop, Mount Sinai, right? You see, Moses had, he had found favor with the Lord, and the Lord would, would interact with Moses. And in Exodus 33, verse 18, at the top of that mountain, Moses asked the Lord for something. You may remember this. He said, Lord, Lord, I want more of you. I want to experience more of you. Please, will you show me your glory? Let me see your glory, Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, Moses, you, you don't want to do that because, because if, we, if we do that, you're done. You're a dead man. You can't handle it. In fact, the Lord would go on to say that nobody, no human can, can see me in all of my glory and, and live. But very interestingly, the, the, the Lord, we're told, did give He did give Moses what he was asking for, at least in part that day. We're told the Lord gave to Moses an ever so partial glimpse of his his glory that day. And get this, we're told that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after getting this little glimpse, listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 and 30. It says, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai, he did not realize that the skin on his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin on his face shone, and they were afraid to come come near him. And so this passage today is giving us a glimpse of glory from the past, a a reminder really of how God's glory came came down on Moses in this ever so slight way, and Moses was was glowing as as a result. But we're also given in this passage a glimpse of glory in the present as well, and and for the present, and I'll explain what that means or what I mean by that. And so fast forward now many, many hundreds of years to Luke chapter 9, our passage today, and what do we see? Well, we're on a mountain again, right? There's there's a cloud again. There's brightness and radiance and glory again. There's, There's Moses again, and there's a voice of God speaking again. And so there are many, many similarities, but what's, what's different this time? What's different is that it's Jesus who is lit up and shining this time. Look at verse 29 again. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. His clothes became leukos is the word in the Greek. It means It means a brilliant, bright, white, as white as white can be. And the word translated dazzling in verse 29, it's a word that literally means uh, flashes of lightning. Now, in Matthew's account of the same scene, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, Matthew tells us what it was about the face of Jesus that had changed. It says, he was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. And that word transfigured, that's the Greek word for metamorphosis. And when you think about the word metamorphosis, and my guess is a a butterfly comes to mind, right? And if you look at a butterfly and you consider what that butterfly looked like uh, before it went into the cocoon and then what it looks like after coming out of the cocoon, you, 
You cannot connect the two, can you? The change is that dramatic because a metamorphosis has taken place. So Peter, James, and John, they had seen Jesus do a lot of incredible things, but they had never seen anything like this. They'd only seen him in his human morphe, in his human form up to this, up to this point. And so when they heard Jesus teach, when they saw him eat, when they saw him sleep, they saw a man, right? They saw a human being. He walked and talked and laughed and, and even cried as, as a man. His morphe, his, his form, his body was 100% human, and that's what they were used to seeing. But all of a sudden, in this moment, we're told a metamorphosis takes place. His face is blazing bright as the sun. His entire body and being is flashing like lightning in a continuous sort of way. And so, so what is going on here? What is this telling us? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai after getting that partial glimpse of the glory of God in Exodus chapter 33, his, his face was indeed shining, but, but not like this. His face was shining, uh, let's say, with a a reflected type of light. It was a reflection of God's glory. It was temporary. It was fading. In some ways, you might say that Moses was shining in the same sort of way that our moon lights up and, and shines at night, right? Because our moon does not shine on its own. Our moon only shines when light from another source, from the, from the sun, is reflected off of it to us. But in this passage today, Jesus is not shining like that, right? Jesus does not reflect the glory of God like Moses did. No, what we're being shown here in this moment in a remarkable way is that the glory of God, it does not come down on Jesus. It comes out of Jesus. The lightning does not flash down on him from another source. It flashes out of him because he is the source. It emanates from him. And this is the Jesus that the three disciples wake up to after nodding off. And it says, when they were awake, when they were fully awake, verse 32, they, they saw his, his glory. They saw his glory. How could you miss it, right? This is one of the most profound expressions of the essential being of Jesus as God given to us in the time he walked this earth because the glory was not coming down on Jesus from somewhere else, the glory was coming out from inside of him. And so this is telling us that Jesus is, is God's glory. He is the very source of God's glory. This is also why in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 of the New Testament, you see that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. It does not say Jesus reflects the radiance of God's glory. It says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. This is also why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we're told that if you're looking for the glory of God, if you want to see the glory of God most fully, you find that glory where? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you have the burning bush, you have the cloud of glory, you have the pillar of fire, you have these different representations, really, of, of who God is. But in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of who God is. Psalm 19 says the skies tell us something about the glory of God. The stars tell us something about the glory of God. The oceans tell us 
something about the glory of God. They're all signs, signs and representations, pointers to the glory of God, but they're nothing, nothing at all like this. Jesus is the glory of God. There is no other way to see the glory of God more perfectly than by looking at Jesus. That's what we're being, that's what we're being told here. So let's talk for a moment about why. Why would Jesus reveal himself in this moment, in this way, in this very, very dramatic way? I think Luke does answer that for us in a couple of different ways. First, if you go back just one verse from today's passage to verse 27, Luke chapter 9, do you remember last week when uh, Jesus was having this conversation with this group of disciples and he was kind of wrapping it up? Do you remember what he said in that final verse, verse 27? I think it'll be up on the screen there. Let's, let's look at it. It says, true, he, he was wrapping up his conversation. He says, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now that's, that sounds kind of cryptic, right? And I'm sure they were scratching their heads a bit, but, but then do you remember how today's passage started out in the very next verse in verse 28? It said this, it said, about eight days after this conversation, he, he being Jesus, took Peter, James, and John, they went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus just finished telling a group of people, some of you standing here right now are going to see the kingdom of God before you die. And then eight days later, you have Peter, James, and John seeing Jesus kind of lit up and, and glorious, flashing like lightning. And so clearly, I think, that's one of the reasons Jesus revealed himself in this way. He was making good on what he had just promised in, in verse 27. But another reason, I think, that Jesus reveals himself in this way is also connected to that same conversation, that same passage from last week. You probably remember Peter's famous confession, right, from last week's pa passage, if you were here, or if, if you're familiar with that part of the Bible. Jesus he asked a group of his disciples, he said, what are the people on the street saying about me? Who do, who do they say that I am? And Peter said, some are saying you're a great teacher. Others are saying you're a great prophet from God. And then Jesus said to the group, okay, but who, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter jumped in as Peter often does. And Peter confessed correctly in Luke chapter 9, verse 20. He said, you are God's Messiah, God's anointed one. But then Jesus said something strange after that, something that, that surely shook these guys up. He said, yes, Peter, I'm, I'm the Messiah, but he told them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be raised, he said, on the third day. He said, don't tell anyone. And then Jesus said, oh, oh, and guys, all of you, too, are going to be rejected. All of you, too, are going to suffer. And many of you are going to be killed, too, because of me. Your, your life as my followers is going to be very hard. And so Peter had confessed correctly, right, who, who Jesus was. He passed the quiz. These men were arriving at correct beliefs about Jesus. They know something about who he is. But Jesus knew, I think, that they needed more. Jesus knew that only having only right beliefs about him will only get a person so far. He knew the right beliefs they had about him were not fully 
fully real to them yet. If they were fully real to them, they probably would not have dozed off on Jesus like they did. It's possible to be very close to Jesus and to have right beliefs about him, but not be changed by them. Sometimes those beliefs, they have to, they have to come alive, right? They have to be experienced, which is exactly what's happening here, what Jesus is giving to them here. So Jesus, by his grace, he wakes them up to a truly uh, life-changing glimpse of his glory. He gives them this incredible mountaintop experience to help fuel them forward, I think. And he did it for them, and he's, he's still doing it today, right? You hear it all the time, people encountering and experiencing the living Jesus in life-changing ways. He gave me one that fractured my entire view of reality and changed the entire course of my life. And I think perhaps for the first time, Peter, James, and John here are coming to understand what kind of worship is available through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. After all, what is, what is worship? Worship is a response, right? Worship is our response to God's revelation of himself to us. And this is one of the most profound revelations Jesus gives us during the time that he walked this earth. And it should, it should wake us up too, right? It should ignite our worship of him. It should energize our lives for him. Jesus is far more than a great prophet or a great teacher who who came to help you find God. He is God himself come to come to find you. But many people were making that mistake about Jesus back then. And many people are still making that mistake today. Even Peter in this passage makes that mistake at first, doesn't he? Look again at verse 33. It says as the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us, let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Peter again jumps in, as Peter often does. He says, hey, guys, excuse me. I have a suggestion. I'd really like to make three tents, one, one for each of you. But then look at what happens next in verse 34. It says, while he was saying this, a cloud appeared. And overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. So God the Father appears in a cloud. He says, Peter, stop talking. Just be quiet, please. (laughs) Peter wanted to make three tents, one for each of them. He seemed to be making Jesus equal with these other great men, and God the Father interrupts things. He says, stop talking, please. He says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him and act accordingly. He is not another prophet who gets you near to the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Can't you see that, Peter? Listen to him. Respond accordingly. Friends, are, are, are you doing that? Are you listening to Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And are you responding rightly to what you say you believe about him?
Now, one of the reasons this rebuke, I think, was needed by Peter and why it's important for us to hear, too, is this. A New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, put it this way. He said, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it is a sham, a nonsense. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between, he says. So N.T. Wright is saying you have a choice here. Luke is asking you to make a choice here too. And one of those choices is not that Jesus was a great teacher or a great prophet up there, up there with all the others. The Bible does not leave that option open to us. But what this passage is saying, I think, and what N.T. Wright is saying is that you can either say that Jesus is an absolute sham and an absolute scam, or you have to say, you must say he's the one way, the, the only way. He's the very source of God's glory. He is God. Jesus is God. And if that's the case, if that's what you believe, he does deserve to be the very point and purpose of of your life. He is either the fire become flesh or is he is complete and utter nonsense. It's one or the other. It's, there's no in-between. There's no, there's no middle ground. And so if you, you're a Christian today, if you profess to be a Christian and you find yourself living in the shallow world in-between, chances are you've, you've dozed off and you need to, you need to wake up you need to be reminded of who, exactly who he is and, and what he's done and, and what it means for you. And speaking of what he's done and what it means for you, we talked about a glimpse from the past and a glimpse in the present. Let's also talk about how we see in this passage a glimpse of the future and a glimpse into the future. First, this passage gives, gives us a glimpse of a very, a very near future that would be coming very soon for Jesus and for Peter, James, and John. Did you notice uh, Mo Moses and Elijah, they show up in this scene and they're having, they're having a conversation, right? They're having a, a conversation with Jesus in, in verse 31. And do you remember what that conversation was about? Look again at verse 31. It says, they, they being Moses and Elijah, appeared in glory and were speaking of his, his departure his departure, which was about, he was about to accomplish in uh, Jerusalem. They were speaking about, about the departure of Jesus. They were, they were talking about his death and his resurrection. This is the conversation that they were having. And Jesus had already told Peter, James, and John something about this in last week's passage, right? I think we mentioned that earlier. They didn't, they didn't fully get it at the time, but he, he did warn them. And so this scene, this conversation, this would have been an, an affirmation, I think, to Peter, James, and John the, that the coming crucifixion of Jesus that they would see with their own eyes would not, would not be some sort of breach or break in the plan of God. It, it, was, it was the very plan of God. 
And so Moses and Elijah are witnesses, in a sense, before Peter, James, and John to, to that very truth. But why Moses and Elijah anyways? Why these two? Many people refer to the Old Testament as a whole, as, as, as the law and the prophets, because that's essentially what it's, what it's made up of, that and the Psalms. And you may know Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible that set down the law that God had given to him. And so Moses is truly the greatest giver of the law. And you could say that Elijah the prophet was the greatest garter of the law. He, he fought for God's honor. He called out the idolatry uh, of the people. So in a, in a very real way, Moses gave the law and Elisha guarded it. And as witnesses... Uh, from the other side of the curtain, so to speak, Moses and Elijah would have been more revered and more trusted by the people of Israel than perhaps anybody else. And so you've got the preeminent representative of the Old Testament law. You've got the preeminent representative of the Old Testament prophets standing in the presence of Jesus, engulfed in his glory, discussing the calculated crucifixion of Christ. And so everything is on schedule, everything according to plan. This is, this is marvelous news. The departure of Jesus would soon be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And do you know that word departure in your Bible? The, the word translated in verse 31 is departure. That's the Greek word exodus. It's the same word. So Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are standing there talking about an exodus, but not the one that Moses led, the one that Jesus would be leading. And the reason I think Luke uses that word here to describe Jesus and what, what he was about to do is that Jesus would soon be comp accomplishing a, a bigger exodus, a better exodus. He would soon be accomplishing the, the ultimate exodus. I mentioned earlier that the word exodus means a movement, right? A movement of people from one place to another. And when you put your faith in Jesus and his gospel, that's what happens, right? That's what he does. He moves you in more ways than one. He moves you from a place of separation from God to a place of reconciliation and relationship with him. He moves you from a place of slavery to sin and Satan and death to a place of freedom from these, our, our greatest enemies. He moves you from a place of condemnation before God to a place of grace and forgiveness by God. He moves you from a place of a darkness to a place of his glorious light. And so I'd like to ask you today, are you part of this movement, this great exodus being led by this Jesus we've been talking about today? If you're not, I want to encourage you to consider joining in. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or, or what you haven't done. All that matters is what you believe. All you have to do is see him for who he really is and, and believe him. He is God come into the human condition to make a way for you. All you have to do is see his death and his resurrection for what they really are, a payment and a promise to put you right with God and to give you a future beyond this life that you, you do not deserve. And we actually get a glimpse of that future here in this passage, a glimpse into our own futures, I think, with, with Jesus and with one another. 
Did you notice that Jesus wasn't the only uh, glorious one in this passage? If you look at verse 31, and we read it a moment ago, it says that Moses and Elijah, when they appeared, they appeared, they appeared in glory. And so there was something glorious, not just about Jesus, but about Moses and Elijah too. Now, it's not entirely clear what that might have looked like, but it very clearly says they appeared in, in glory. And so what is that? And why is that? First of all, remember the reasons we talked about as to why this scene was happening. One of those reasons was because Jesus was making good on the promise that he had just made to this group of people in verse 27. Look at verse 27 again. It's, he said, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they, what? Until they see, until they see the kingdom of God. And here we are, eight days later, and what are Peter, James, and John seeing? They're seeing Jesus lit up and, and shining. They're seeing Moses and Elijah appearing in glory too. I think what this means is that in this moment, Peter, James, and John, and you and I too, we are, we are peering behind the curtain and seeing some things about the kingdom of God, just as, just as Jesus had said. We are being given a glimpse of the eternal kingdom of God that every follower of Jesus can look forward to. And if that's the case, what we're seeing here in this scene is incredibly hopeful and incredibly uh, encouraging. First of all, notice, notice that Moses and Elijah, they are, they are men. They have their bodies. They are recognizable. There is a certain continuity in their individual identities. And so in this eternal kingdom of God, it seems when we get there, we're going to be who we are, at least in some sense. And notice, they're having a conversation, right? They're socializing. They're hanging out with Jesus. Information is being exchanged. They're talking about a plan, right? There's, there's meaning, there's purpose. Things are, are going somewhere. And that's very encouraging. When we get there, we will be who we are in a certain sense. But at the same time, the Bible is clear that in another sense, we will not be who we are at all. And that's perhaps even more encouraging. Just as we see Moses and Elijah appearing in a glorified form here in this passage, the Bible teaches that ultimately you and I will do the same. Ultimately, you and I will be the same. Our bodies ultimately will be glorified and glorious too. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about the redemption of our souls via the gospel. But in Romans chapter 8, he talks about a future, a future redemption that is to come. A future redemption, he says, he says of our bodies that is coming. And he says that as believers, we should be eagerly, eagerly awaiting it. And listen to what Paul says about the same sort of thing in Philippians chapter 3. He's talking, he's talking here to you and I as believers. Philippians 3.20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly, await, we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, talking about the second coming. 
Get this, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So do you hear that? This is incredible. Now there is, there is mystery to this, to be sure, friends, but we are being told here and in other places of the Bible that we can look forward to having glorified and perfected bodies when Jesus returns. Now, I don't know about you, but my body could use a bit of perfecting these days. Talk about a hopeful doctrine, right? I wonder if we need to teach more about this doctrine more often. We might see more interest in Jesus if people knew this was part of the deal. But seriously, think about this. The Bible teaches that in these glorified, perfected bodies, there will, we will never experience bodily decay or deterioration. We will be free of physical defect. We will be free of moral and spiritual defect too. In this glorified state, the Bible teaches that we will never again struggle with sin. In fact, we're told that we will be fully and finally conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, when he comes again, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be like him. That's what we'll be. That's who we'll be together in fellowship forever with Jesus. And the Bible also tells us uh, where we'll be. It says we'll be living out our lives for all eternity with Jesus, with one another in a perfect world as it was intended, a new creation altogether where all things, not some things, all things will be made new. The Bible says it will be like a great celebration a great feast flowing with rich food and well-aged wine. Can you imagine this place? A place with no more sin, no more struggle, no more suffering. A place with no more grief or crying or pain. A place with no more injustice, no more racism, no more hatred or war or killings a place with no more disease or sickness or death. Can you imagine this place? This is the place that we are told to look forward to. And friends, get this. This Jesus who has given us this remarkable glimpse of glory today, we're told that his glory will fill this place. We're told that his glory will actually illuminate this place. Listen to what it says in Revelations chapter 21, verse 23. The city, meaning the city of God, the new Jerusalem where, where all this will go down. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? It tells us why. Because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The lamp is Jesus Friends, this transfigured Christ that we are privileged to see and experience today is not so much giving us a glimpse of the Christ who came, 
It's giving us a glimpse of the Christ who is coming again a second time to, to usher in this new reality for us and to dwell forever with us. I hope and pray that this glimpse of his glory today will wake us up, that it will ignite our worship of him, and that it would energize our lives for him. Let's pray together.